and reach for a copy of the Word of God. You guys use the ESV here? I hope you don't mind if I read from the New King James. I don't believe you'll find it all that different in the passage that we read together now. If we could, uh, turn first to Revelation chapter 12 for our New Testament lesson. I'll be preaching from Exodus chapter 1, uh, Revelation chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 12, where we get quite a scene uh, that is recorded for us here of the vision, one of the visions that uh, the Apostle John received on the island of Patmos as he receives this apocalypse, this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his glory, his kingdom, of his work among the nations of the earth. This is the word of the living God. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that she should be fed there, that, he, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. This is God's word. Let's turn to Exodus uh, chapter 1 together. I'll be reading to you the first 14 verses of Exodus chapter 1, from where we will... Meditate in our sermon this morning. And this is God's holy word. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, 
multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask of you now that you would empower me just now to faithfully explain and apply this portion of your word to your people. We ask that uh, the Spirit might feed us on our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would see something of the glory of his kingdom, that we would be drawn to him, and Father, that we would, more than we have before perhaps, be compelled uh, to serve him and to give up any service to the kingdom of this world. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, the book of Exodus doesn't exactly start with a bang, does it? Uh, you, you glance there at the first six verses, and it looks uh, like nothing more than a, a very bland obituary. An obituary written by someone, perhaps, who must not have known the deceased well enough to give them a proper eulogy. They all died. They all died. There doesn't seem to be much here at first, but as with any passage of Scripture, to understand why this book begins the way it does, we need to resist the temptation to immediately ask the question, what does it mean for me? Right? The better question is, first of all, what did it mean for the people that it was first written to? This book was written by Moses, first of all, for the children of Israel who were born in Egypt and who lived through the history that this book records. What did Exodus 1, 1 through 6, say to those people? Well, it reinforced uh, what they had already learned by painful experience. Before the people of God, Egypt was nothing more than one big graveyard. Now, this was hinted at earlier in the history that is told to us in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 37, uh, when Joseph's brothers were plotting to kill him, remember Joseph had these exalted dreams in which he, would, he, he foresaw himself being exalted above his brothers, even over his mother and his father. And his brothers plotted to kill them, but then they, they saw an opportunity. Instead, they decided to make some money off him. They sold him uh, to Ishmaelite traders who we are told were going down into Egypt. And so it is in God's word that Egypt is a place that you always go down into. And what were those Ishmaelites 
uh, carrying with them down into Egypt. It's very interesting that we get told uh, what, they were, what they were carrying. Moses tells us in Genesis 37, uh, verse 25, that they were bearing spices, balm, and myrrh. Now these uh, were compounds that were used by the Egyptians to embalm the dead. Ancient Egypt, of course, is best known for its advanced techniques in preserving dead bodies. Now, maybe, children, you have uh, even seen some pictures of the ancient Egyptians' artwork, the mummified body, a well-preserved mummy. Even the main attractions that draw people as tourists today to the uh, nation of Egypt are these uh, grand uh, monuments, the, the part of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And what were they? These uh, sphinx and the, the uh, pyramids of Giza. They're tombs. Ancient tombs built to bury their wealthy and powerful dead. And for this reason, Egypt has been associated with death going back to the time of this ancient history. But Egypt's association with death and the grave is more than just historical. It is theological. In Scripture, we see that God Himself identifies Egypt and Pharaoh more specifically as a dragon, as a serpent that slays the nations of the earth. Let me give you a few examples of this in Scripture. In Psalm 89, verses 8 through 10, the psalm writer remembers the Lord's slaughter of Pharaoh and the Egyptian armies at the Red Sea. And he sings this, You, Lord, rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Now the word Rahab there is, in our English, it looks like the word Rahab, the Canaanite harlot that we meet in Joshua chapter 2, but this is a different Hebrew word entirely, and it means serpent. It's, the, the, this word is used repeatedly in the Old Testament as a proper name for the nation of Egypt. In Isaiah chapter 51, verses 9 through 10, the prophet remembers that same history as Psalm 89 records. And the prophet says this, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in ancient days in the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the dragon? Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? And let me cite just one more Old Testament passage that, that confirms that ancient Egypt, from God's perspective, was a deadly place. It was a, a place of death. Ezekiel chapter 29, verses 2 and following, the Lord says to the prophet, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you. O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, O great dragon who lies in the midst of the rivers, who has said, My river is my own. I have made it for myself. Now, perhaps some of you are wondering right now uh, why Pharaoh in Egypt would be called the serpent and the great dragon. Right? Because we're thinking of that 
passage in Revelation chapter 12 that I, I read to you earlier that's, that says that the great dragon and the serpent of old is the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. How can, how can both Satan and ancient Egypt be the great dragon and the serpent? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Pharaoh and Egypt can be called the serpent and the great dragon because they do the bidding of their father, the devil. They were Satan's offspring. So as we think about Pharaoh's kingdom, what we are looking at is in Pharaoh's kingdom is a powerful illustration of the kind of kingdom that Satan would inspire mankind to build in opposition to the kingdom of God. The reason ancient Egypt was considered a graveyard is because it embodied the kingdom of darkness. And Satan is a murderer from the beginning, is he not? All of his suggestions, all of his deceptions, all of his temptations, all of his lies lead people into eternal death. And, and the pharaohs built Egypt on those lies. Young people, this is just the way the world works. The, the world works to magnify the accomplishments of men and to minimize and make small our God. And thereby enslaving people. But in the days of Joseph, as Genesis shows us, the Pharaoh who knew Joseph, the Pharaoh who knew Joseph, he came to, to know and to trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His kingdom under Joseph's leadership became the only place on the planet that you needed to go to if you wanted to live. For a time, God used Joseph to make Egypt into a place of salvation. And we can look at, at what God did to Egypt in, in Joseph's day and, and see that there is hope for the nations of the earth. God can do whatever He pleases among the nations of the earth. But it should send a shiver down our spines when we read in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now it seems quite improbable that this new pharaoh who came to power didn't know who Joseph was. The pharaoh was the most educated man in the nation of Egypt. He was a student of history. He knew Egyptian history, and he knew who Joseph was. This Hebrew verb should be translated, better translated there in verse 8, that the new king of Egypt did not acknowledge Joseph. That is, he didn't acknowledge and honor the position that the children of Israel enjoyed in Egypt due to what God had done through Joseph. So inspired by Satan, this Pharaoh is not just forsaking the debt of gratitude that Egypt owes to Joseph. He is forsaking the debt of gratitude that Egypt owes to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the, that, that is the theological perspective that we need to have as we read this history. We are, we are not reading about the struggle between the children of Israel and Pharaoh so much as we are reading about the struggle between Satan and the Lord God. 
between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And if you look at Exodus as a continuation of the book of Genesis, and I think that we should, the very first word in the Hebrew is the word and. And. That's not the way you begin a story. That's the way you continue a story. And so as we read Genesis, Exodus as a continuation of the book of Genesis, we notice that it has been a while since God has spoken to His people. Exodus chapter 1 is a continuation of this long period of silence. The fact that God has been silent for about 400 years when Exodus begins makes the last thing that God said to his people very, very significant. And so I'd like you to turn with me to Genesis uh, chapter 46, verse 2, not too far away to the left. Genesis chapter 46, verse 2. This is where Jacob, or Israel, as the Lord renamed him, he's traveling to Egypt after learning that his beloved son, Joseph, is not only alive, he is the prime minister of Egypt. And on his journey here, the Lord met Israel as he worshipped, and he said to him in a vision of the night, he said, "Uh, Jacob, Jacob. Jacob said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Now, I want you to think about this, young people. Think about this. Think about what the Lord is promising uh, Jacob there. He promised to go down into the grave of Egypt with, with Jacob. He said that Joseph, his son, will put his hand on Jacob's eyes. Now, that means that Joseph will be with Jacob when Jacob dies. When Jacob Jacob breathes his last breath, his son Joseph will put his hand on his father's eyes. The Lord is saying, Jacob, you are going to die in Egypt. You're going to the grave. But I will be with you there. And after I've made your children into a great nation, I will bring you up again. Now think about that. That's what I want you to think about. If Jacob will be dead... How is God going to bring him up to the promised land? Well, the answer is that he will raise him from the dead. He will raise Jacob and his children from the dead to keep his promises to them. That's the spiritual promises that God's people should have been clinging to as they lived in Egypt, as we meet them here in chapter 1. It is the last thing that he said to them. There is a promise there of resurrection. And I point all of this out to provide us with the key background and perspective that should inform the way that we read the book of Exodus. The battle God's people find themselves caught up in here is is a spiritual and a, a heavenly one, as is ours. And the promises that God is making to them, they are spiritual and they are heavenly, as are the, the promises that he has made to us. So we will see then that the Lord is teaching us. He's teaching us here about our spiritual battle and his spiritual promises. Now, we've set the stage uh, for our look at the rest of this section of chapter 1, and we'll see the main message arise as we take in the details. 
As I pointed out already, the Lord has been silent for many generations. By the time he speaks to Moses in chapter 3, it will have been over 400 years since he gave a fresh revelation of himself to his people. But don't, don't take that to mean that he is not present with them. What was the last thing he said to Jacob? I will go down with you to Egypt. And his silent presence is heard here loud and clear. We can, we can hear the echo of his past promises when we read in verse 7. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. That means God was present. God was with them, just as he had promised Jacob. God was present, fulfilling the promises that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember that God had promised Abraham that he would bless him so that his descendants would be multiplied as numerous as the stars in the sky. God told Isaac that he would bless him and multiply his descendants for Abraham's sake. And I already read to you how God promised to make a mighty nation of Jacob in Egypt. So it's unmistakably clear that God is present to bless the children of Israel while they are exiled in Egypt. And Moses says that to us here in five different ways in one verse. They were fruitful, they increased abundantly, they multiplied, they grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. In the span of 400 years, the children of Israel grew from 70 persons to 600,000 plus fighting men, not including women and children. And this is an, a miraculous population explosion that cannot be explained by, uh, merely by ordinary human behavior. This shows us that the God of Jacob was silently present to bless his people and to fulfill his promises to them. And, and, and we will see, don't we, as the story goes on, that the character of the children of Israel, we see from their, their bad behavior, we see from their unbelief that God was not blessing them because they were better people than the Egyptians, right? No, God actually calls this generation that leaves Egypt in the Exodus, the children of Israel, he calls them a stiff-necked generation. Like us. He, he blesses them, not because they are good, but because he has cut a covenant with their father Abraham. And you might remember that the scene in which, in Genesis chapter 15, when the Lord cuts a covenant with Abraham, the covenants were cut, these relationships between a king and, and his people by tearing animals into two parts and creating a bloody pathway through which the two parties in the covenant would pass through. But you might remember who passed through that bloody pathway. Abraham took a nap, and the Lord alone walked through that bloody pathway, those torn animal parts, symbolizing what should be done to him if he does not fulfill the, the promises of the covenant. And when God alone passed through the bloody pathway, it meant that God was promising to fulfill both his own obligations in the relationship, but also to fulfill the obligations of Abraham in that relationship. The Lord was saying if if Abraham and his children break the covenant requirements that God himself would pay the price that they owed to secure the relationship and hold it together. 
So you see God is he's blessing the children of Israel in Egypt, not because they are better than the Egyptians. God blessed them because he made a promise to bless them despite their sin and their failure. Well, what does Pharaoh think of that? He's not very impressed with Joseph or Joseph's God, is he? Pharaoh sees them as a threat to his kingdom, which is why we see in verses 9 through 10 that he starts a, a public smear campaign against them. He, he's trying to turn his people against the children of Israel. Now, from what we know of ancient Egypt, Pharaoh is exaggerating the size of Israel when he says that they are a mightier nation than the nation of Egypt. This is what uh, we would call propaganda. Propaganda. It's propaganda designed to, to get the citizens of Egypt to start seeing Israel as a threat that endangers everyone's future. The world often does this to God's people. And Pharaoh says we need to deal shrewdly with them. We need to keep them from multiplying further. They, they, he, said he offers the uh, rationale that they might join Egypt's enemies in some future war and go up out of the land. And it's very interesting, that last comment there in verse 10. It tells us what motivates, what really motivates Pharaoh. He does not want Israel to leave his land. He must have known that God had promised to bring Israel out of Egypt back to the land that he had promised to Abraham. But Pharaoh doesn't want children, the children of Israel to leave his land. Why? He's devising a plan here because he wants to keep them from going. Why? Because he wants them to be his slaves. He wants them to serve his kingdom and help Pharaoh make his nation even greater. He wants them as slaves to build his cities. And we're told here, what are the children of Israel doing? They're building the cities as tributes to Pharaoh. We see there uh, that in verses 11 through 14 where Pharaoh sets taskmasters over Israel to afflict them with the burden of rigorous work. The children of Israel, we are told, are put to work uh, building the cities of Pithom and Ramesses. These two cities uh, were dedicated, one to the god Atum, and the other one to the pharaohs themselves. These cities were built to show off the power and the glory of Pharaoh, his divine status and the greatness of his kingdom. We might liken these two cities to our own New York City, a tribute to American ingenuity and creativity and wealth and prosperity and success. Now, these cities were built to communicate there, there is nothing in heaven or in earth like Pharaoh and his kingdom. In case you are wondering what it might have been like to be a, a slave in Egypt at this time, maybe you think, well, maybe you know, it's, we're told it's rigorous. We told it was, it, was, it was bitter. Maybe, though, not as bad as, as uh, is described. We have some ancient Egyptian texts that describe the way that they treated their slaves. Uh, one uh, such text reads like this. Now the scribe of Pharaoh lands on the shore. He surveys the harvest. His attendants are behind him with staffs, the Nubians with clubs. One slave says to him, give us grain. But he is told there is none. 
Then he is beaten savagely. He is bound. He's thrown into a well. He is submerged under the water, head down. His wife is bound in his presence, and his children are in fetters. Pharaoh's plan here, we see, was to break their bodies, to break their minds, to break their will so that the people would be too weak to continue having children or that they would simply die of the hard labor and the cruel abuse. But there's only one problem with Pharaoh's plan. Again, God was silently present. This passage shows us, friends, that that nothing and, and no one can stop our God from fulfilling the word that He has spoken to us, the promises that He has made to us. So we see in verse 12 that the more that the Egyptians afflicted the children of Israel, the more they multiplied and grew. A pastor and Bible commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, uh, calls this God's sovereign irony. God's sovereign irony. The more Pharaoh seeks to destroy, the more God makes his people flourish. You might know of uh, Irenaeus, uh, early uh, church father, who uh, spoke of the, the, the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church. The more that the people of God are afflicted by the world, the more God multiplies his people and causes them to flourish. According to verse 12, This power of God puts fear and dread into the Egyptians. It it must have made them wonder, what strange magic is at work here among the children of Israel? But we know it wasn't magic, right, children? There's no magic here. It's the silent presence of the Lord our God who went down with His people into the grave. God is overruling Pharaoh. As Davis puts it, Pharaoh is God's lackey. Even through Pharaoh's evil treatment of the children of Israel, God accomplishes his good and perfect will for them. We know, of course, that the principalities and powers of this world often inflict pain upon God's children. They often threaten us. But but here we see in verses 13 and 14 that the Egyptians' response to God's blessing uh, was to increase the sorrow of their labor. We're told that they they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. There's a Hebrew word that's used in verse 14. It's used, the same Hebrew word, used five times, and this, this word is often translated to labor, to work, to slave. It is, however, the same Hebrew word that God uses when He confronts Pharaoh through His servant Moses. And He says, let my people go so that they can serve me. This Hebrew word can also be translated that they may worship me. And what is being, this tells us, friends, that what is being contrasted here in the book of Exodus is the cruel service that Pharaoh and the world demands of the people of God. And it is being contrasted with the blessedness of the freedom and the worship that God gives to His people. The Egyptians made the children of Israel's lives bitter with the service or the, the worship of Pharaoh and his kingdom. 
And it's that fact reported in verse 14 that makes clear God's message to the children of Israel and to us through this passage. And it's this, very simply. The bitter bondage of serving the world prepares the way for God's children to taste the sweetness of God delivering us to worship Him. You'll see in chapter 12, on the night of the Passover, the eve of Israel's freedom from the bondage of Egypt, that the Lord commanded His children to, uh, to eat a meal. That meal, you may know, the Passover meal would become a perpetual memorial to be kept by all future generations every year. And one of the menu items for that Passover meal was a helping of bitter herbs. Bitter herbs. Now, when I, when I was a child, I, uh, my brothers and I were frequently served a vegetable medley uh, with dinner, and it had lima beans in it. Now, to me, lima beans had this horrible, bitter taste, and so to avoid the pain, the bitter pain of eating lima beans, I learned a trick. I, I learned, uh, young people, I learned how to swallow a lima bean whole without crushing it in my mouth and tasting the bitterness of it. And I, uh, but as I, before I learned that trick and I was chomping on those bitter lima beans, I, I imagine I looked at my parents and said, why on earth would you do this to us? Now I'm being a little dramatic, but I imagine the last thing that was left on the plates of the Jewish people when they ate their Passover meal, the last thing left on their plate was those bitter herbs. Maybe the children especially had a hard time figuring out why in the world would our God command us to choke down something that tastes so horrible? And the reason is because He's gracious. He is kind. As you can see from Exodus chapter 1, God is determined to bless His people, but in order to do that, His people must know what it tastes like to be blessed by serving Him. That there's a sweet taste to serving that comes from the blessing of serving the Lord our God. But you know what? That sweet taste is best appreciated today only after you have tasted the bitterness of serving the kingdom of this world. Serving sin. Serving self. Have you tasted the bitterness of that? Perhaps you're tasting the bitter consequences of having done that in your own life even now. The best that this world can offer you is a life of bondage, a bitter toil that is lived in service to whatever the world says it means to be alive. In the world's estimation, what God is building isn't worth a second glance. The church? Jesus is building a church? How pathetic. How weak. Look what we're doing. In the world's eyes, what is most important is that you work your tail off doing all of the things the world says are most important. Isn't this true, young people? Doesn't the world teach us that we should not rest until we look like all the beautiful and powerful people that we see? 
Not, don't rest until you have, you, you have done what they do. Don't rest until you have what they have. Like the builders of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, the world tells us we should be working not to make God's name great, but to make a name for ourselves. Isn't that what they built that tower for? And Pharaoh's main mission was to make a name for himself. But children, let me ask you something. What, what is the name of this Pharaoh that did not go Joseph? What was his name? Uh, you scour the book of Exodus and you will not find it. God, the Spirit of God in inspiring this passage of this, this book, this story, this history, I want you to notice this, that Pharaoh's name is never given. No. He builds cities and elaborate tombs to make his own name great, but God will not allow his name to be recorded in this sacred history. But I want you to notice something else. The only names given here are God's deceased children. The ones that He's promised to raise again from the dead. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? The, the bitter bondage of Egypt was preparing God's children to long for the sweetness of God's deliverance. Now, Phil Riken explains it like this. It took the suffering and bondage to make God's people cry out for their, their salvation. Once again, the joke was on Pharaoh. By enslaving the Israelites, Pharaoh made them long for the very thing that he was trying to prevent, their freedom in a new land. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, in order to cut loose the bonds that bound them to Egypt, the sharp knife of affliction must be used. And Pharaoh, though he knew it not, was God's instrument in weaning them from the Egyptian world and helping them as his church to take their separate place in the wilderness and receive the portion which God had appointed for them. Maybe you believe that you have, in order to have a blessed life, you have to take your marching orders from the world. The Pharaoh, the great dragon, or the spirit of the age, whatever you want to call the demonic influences in our world today, they demand that you labor and toil, working night and day, seven days a week without rest in order to participate in building the city of man. And you better believe it, it is the devil's design that he leave you with not a scrap of time to participate in the life of the city of God. When God's deliverer comes to Pharaoh and he demands Israel's freedom, it is so that they can go out into the wilderness and worship the Lord to build him a house. And Pharaoh will say, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? The people must not cease from their work. How American of Pharaoh. You probably hear people groan all of the time about how busy their lives are, but often it isn't the busyness of worshiping God, the busyness of fellowshipping with His people, the busyness of being a disciple, the busyness of 
discipling our children. Now, those are the the things beyond our ordinary work that God would have us prioritize. But those are the things that so often get, get crowded out of our lives, the lives of God's people. I, as a pastor, I see God's people's lives filled with busyness of doing all of these things that the world says that we should be doing, and God gets the leftovers. God wants us to experience the the pressure that the world puts on us to conform. He wants us to see that, that way of living as a form of slavery that is imposed by a master who only wants to afflict you and to make your life bitter. The affliction we suffer trying to achieve the American ideal is it's mild compared with, to what the children of Israel experienced in Egypt. But still, when people are taken captive by the devil to do his will, there will be bitterness. But what about the people of God? In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, we are told that by faith, Moses, when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. That means, friends, that by faith, Even though Jesus Christ had not yet been born, Moses could see Him. He could see the glory of Christ's kingdom. And he said, that is where I want to make my home. You think about our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4 when He's tempted by the devil and the devil takes Him and shows Him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Satan says to them, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and serve Me. Serve me, and you can have the kingdom of this, the kingdoms of this world. Jesus knew that they would be his. But to have them truly, he had to go to the cross in obedience to his Father to pay for our sins. Jesus didn't consider Satan's offer for even a second. He said, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. You guys, that's what freedom, that's what true freedom looks like. And so I ask of you, are there ways, perhaps, in which Satan has captivated you to do his will rather than the Lord's? One of the ways that we can evaluate this about ourselves is is seeing the place that we put uh, the Lord's worship and service in relationship to everything else in life. As we close, I I want you to think about Jesus' exodus. Did you know that Jesus had an exodus? In the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, as Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and He is uh, meeting with Moses and Elijah, and we're told, Luke tells us, that He spoke to them about the exodus that He was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. The bitterness of the cross was Jesus saying no, not not only paying the debt of sin that we owe to God, but it was also Him saying no to seeking glory and power here in the kingdom of this world. As Paul put it about Himself, that He glories in the cross of Jesus Christ by which He is crucified to the world and the world is crucified to Him. 
And so it is, brothers and sisters, if you want to truly be free, you must trust in Jesus Christ and Him only should you serve. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we, we thank You for the liberty of the sons of God that You have come to give to us. Lord, to lead us out of the, the bitter bondage of being taken, having been taken captive by the devil to do His will. We thank You that Jesus has come and that He has given His life as a ransom for many, even for us, that through His death and through His life, and by the power of His life poured out upon us in the gift of the Holy Spirit that we have freedom from the power of sin, that we might walk in newness of life, that we might see in Christ our death and our rising again to live in the newness of the Spirit in fellowship with You. And we ask, O Lord, that we would taste the sweetness of that today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.